We're going to continue with, um, uh, with what we've been doing just this, through the summer. We've been looking at the Psalms. This is not the Psalm that Pastor Sheldon was, <clears throat> was going to speak on today, but I'm going to have a look at you, or look with you at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is one of six Psalms, a collection of Psalms in the Old Testament that are sometimes called the penitential Psalms. They each deal in a very stark and honest way with the subject of sin. Probably the most famous is Psalm 51, Create in me a new heart, O God. But this is a close second. And because it deals with sin, there's no escaping that subject. I think it's important to acknowledge our starting point with that language. The word sin hits modern ears in a way that either kind of makes us laugh or makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable because it feels like a guilt trip that we're laying down on people. But it makes us laugh primarily because it's been seized upon and, and looked upon as, well, advertisers use it as a way of promoting their products. Sinfully good, they say, about Godiva chocolate. chocolate. Lingerie is uh, the sinful indulgence. Governments impose sin taxes on luxury items. We don't take the word with the same kind of seriousness that people had in mind when this psalm was first read and when it was first written. But the Bible says there is nothing more important for practical living than the concept of sin in general, but more specifically, the understanding of how sin affects us personally and individually. So we're going to take a close look at the psalm. I'm going to suggest, and you'll find this in your outline, that it will teach us three things about this uncomfortable subject of sin. First, it deals with the the poisonous reality. It's not humorous. It's not lighthearted. It can't be sloughed off. It deals with the reality. Then it deals with the treatment. And finally, it talks about the antidote. So let's start there right at the top at verse one. If you have your Bibles or your phones, switch them on. And we're going to look at verse 1, where there are two words that both can be translated sin or transgression. You see there it says, blessed is the one whose transgressions, that's the first word, are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's the second word. Different words, in fact. In that first word, the word transgression, the word behind that is the word pesha, and it means quite literally rebelliousness, rebellious self-assertion. What is sin? Sin is rebellious self-assertion. A long time ago, a man named St. Augustine wrote a great book, The Confessions. It's still read today. It's still part of the core curriculum of anybody in a literature program. It's the first autobiography that we know of that was ever written, at least in the English language, or translated into English. And in this great book, The Confession, he recalls an incident that happened when he was about 16 years old. He and a bunch of his friends broke into a pear orchard and they stole a bushel of pears. And afterwards, he was asking himself the question, why did I do that? Especially when A, I wasn't hungry, and B, I don't really like pears anyway. And so he's reflecting on this, and he says, I realized the reason that I wanted to steal the pears was because it was forbidden. Because somebody said, don't go into the orchard. If nobody would said, don't go there, he probably would have had no interest whatsoever. Sounds a little bit like Genesis, right? You can have the fruit from any tree that you want, except that one. 
And so suddenly that one has all of the magnetism and all the gravity attached to it. It's because somebody says you can't that we think that we ought to. Nobody tells me how to live my life. That's self-assertion. And that self-assertiveness, that self-centeredness, that hatred of, of having limitations placed around us, of being boxed in, it is the cause of so much misery in our lives and in our world. One writer, a man named Francis Spufford, listen to what he said. He said, sin is the human tendency not just to lurch a little bit and stumble and screw up by accident. Sin is the active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here meaning promises and relationships that we care about and our own well-being. Now, here's the thing. If the very core of the core of our innermost being is this impulse, uh, this landmine that that just explodes when anybody says, don't do that, then what are the implications? What are the consequences? It means if the rules get in the way, we tend to want to break the rules. If, If the promises get in the way, we might just break the promises. If relationships get in the way, we're willing even to sacrifice the relationships. And think about what that looks like. Because you can't really have a relationship without giving up some of your independence. The closer you are to a friend, the closer you are in a romantic relationship, the more you can't just do what you want. And there's a part of us that will always resist that. The idea of two people living together in close companionship, runs right against that that natural, or maybe we should call it the unnatural grain of self-centeredness, that streak that runs down our back like the, the white line on a skunk. There's something, there's something deep inside of us, self-assertiveness, transgression is the word here, that makes us want to break stuff and break rules and break relationships. So that's the first word. Here's the second word. Let's read the verse again. Verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions, rebellious self-assertion, are forgiven. Whose sins, this is the second word, are covered. The word there is shatah, which means to go off the path, to, to stray. It's another way of looking at the subject of sin, and it tells us something else. First of all, there's, there is a path that, that, you, that you follow to get to a destination, The path's been cleared so that you can walk without tripping. If you go off the path, you get into the weeds. You can't see where you're going. You might fall. You might get lost. You might go right off the edge of a cliff. It tells us something else about sin. Let's uh, let's do a case study. Think about lying for just a minute. What happens when you lie? And I don't mean when you get caught. Because sometimes you lie and you never get caught. In fact, a lot of people lie and don't get caught. But what happens when you don't get caught? Is there anything wrong? Does anything happen? Sure it does. First, the relationship, that that context in which the lie was told, it begins to erode because the minute you lie to somebody, you have to expend maximum effort from then on keeping the truth hidden. You can never be unguarded with them. You can't share deeply with them. You can't open up. And the minute that begins to happen, the relationship begins to decay. Right? Secondly, when you lie, you're not treating people as subjects. You're treating them like objects. You're manipulating them. 
you're telling them what they want to hear or what you think they want to hear. You're, you're trying to control them. You're, you're not treating them like people. You're treating them like things. It's dehumanizing. And when you dehumanize other people, you dehumanize yourself at the same time. And you just, you get a little bit harder inside. The studies will show that the more often a person lies, the less often they're able to trust anyone else. In other words, if you're not trustworthy, you're going to tend to believe that other people aren't trustworthy either. And in the end, every time you lie, you're actually, you're taking a shot at the whole fabric of humanity, a society in which people cannot trust each other. Doesn't that feel like the world in which we live now? You can't trust what you read. You can't trust what you hear. Fake news. Everything's unraveling. The economy unravels. Rule of law unravels everything. You know, when the Bible says, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, bear false witness, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, that's, that's not just busy work. That's just the basic minimum standard of what it takes to live together in the world. And what happens in the area of sin is that that design begins to decay. It breaks down. So there's this impulse in us. Self-assertion, self-centeredness. It makes us want to break stuff and promises and relationships and rules. And when we do it, it's not just that we risk getting caught. It's not just the consequences. It's not just the catastrophic consequences of Judgment Day, there's natural consequences today because we're going against the fabric of things, against the grain of the universe, if you will. And it strains the reality that God has in mind. And things begin to break down. That's, that's the poisonous reality that this psalm has in mind. One more thing I want you to notice. Have a look again at that very first verse. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Let's think about that last expression, whose sins are covered. We need cover. Uh, imagine you're going about your life, and then you realize that somebody's looking in through the keyhole at you. They can see everything that you do. They can hear everything that you say. Didn't they make a movie about that? Jim, Jim Carrey? What was that called? The Truman Show, right? And how catastrophic that was. Let's say for the sake of argument that they can see everything that you do, hear everything you say, and know everything that you think. How do you feel? It's, it's intolerable, right? It feels like hell on earth. Why? We need cover. Modern people, we, we said that the word sin has very little currency nowadays. It's, it's laughable. It's... Um, uh, it's something that's generally sloughed off. Modern people feel sinful even though they don't feel guilt. We may be the first culture in history that doesn't have a consensus anymore about, about right and, and wrong. Let's say you're married and you're contemplating an affair with somebody else. Is that all right? Some people say yes. Some people say no. So I guess it's just up to us to figure it out, right? In a sense, nobody is guilty. And yet we can't avoid that sense inside that there's something wrong. We've had the guilt explained away. We've had it therapized away. And yet we still feel guilty. We know there's something wrong. We don't believe in sin, but we feel like sinners. It's like somebody who goes to the doctor and they've got all the symptoms. They just don't know the name of the disease yet. 
we're a culture that deals with the symptoms of sin without being able to use the language to describe it. And we need cover. Because we know we're hypocrites. We know we can't pass the test. Not even the test of our own standards. We may not agree on what guilt is, but we still feel guilty. I'm just saying that that the subject of sin gets at that very practical reality that we feel like there's something wrong going on inside. Until it gets addressed, it gets worse and worse as the years go by. So what do we do? What is it we do with that sense that there is something wrong? Here's the second part of the psalm, the treatment. Have a look at verse 5. Are you with me still? It's very quiet in this room this morning. You're still here, right? Verse 5. There, I have a feeling that when the screen went off, everybody went. Okay, verse 5. Three things you can do. Then I acknowledge my sin to you. I cover up my iniquity. And I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Let's unpack that a little bit. Talking here about confession. Liberating. Liberating confession. You know why it's liberating? It's liberating because... It relieves the conscience, the sense that there's something wrong. It takes it takes the weight off and it silences all of that nagging inner dialogue. It can actually change you so that you don't keep doing the things that you don't want to do. What's the treatment? Three things. First, you need a clear standard. You need a clear standard. The first thing to do with that inner nagging voice, that sense that there's something wrong, is to find the standard. And the standard has to be what God thinks about your life and your choices. Listen to what the psalm writer says. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, Lord. Now, why does it have to be that? There are people who feel guilty about things that they shouldn't feel guilty about. We know that, right? And there are people who don't feel guilty about things that they really ought to feel guilt about. There's a place in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says exactly that. My conscience may be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. In fact, let me give you the whole thing. Paul says, I don't care whether you judge me by any human courts or judges or standards. He says, I don't even get to judge myself. My conscience may be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. And finally, he says... It's the Lord who judges me. See, there's those three things. Just first of all, I don't care what you think. He's not letting public opinion dictate how he feels about himself. You cannot let your heart be judged only by what society says, because society can be wrong. It often is, and even if it's not, it's always changing. Secondly, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. My conscience may be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. There are lots of people who have done terrible, terrible things without feeling any guilt. The conscience is not a certain guide. It is a guide, yes, and it can be a powerful guide, but it's not infallible. And we know, like the sharp edge of a razor, razor, if you keep hammering on it, it can get blunted. And it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. There are people who don't feel guilt where they ought to, and there are people who feel guilty about things that they shouldn't feel any guilt around. There's a place in, in 1 John where it says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. You can't always trust your conscience. doesn't matter what Jiminy Cricket said, right? What was that? Always let your conscience be your guide. Give a little whistle. (whistles) Paul says, 
No. No. I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. I will care what God thinks. Public opinion changes. Your conscience changes. You need to have a sharp, straight edge. You need a standard. And that's where the psalm writer begins prescribing treatment. Acknowledge your sin where? Before God. Here's the second part of the treatment. You need to take full responsibility for what it is that you've done. Notice it says here, then I acknowledged my sin to the Lord and I didn't cover it up. I didn't cover up my my iniquity. No excuses. In a minute, we're going to see that, that God covers our sin, but you don't get to. One of the main ways that we do this is by, by blame shifting. And we're really good at this in our generation. We say, yeah, I did that. And yeah, I know it wasn't good. But I learned it from my mother, right? And you would have done it too if you were raised the way that I was raised. If you were brought up in the environment where I was brought up. If you were in my shoes. And I feel bad about it, right? Those things may be all true. And they may all be the occasions for your sin. And we need to be sensitive to and aware of all those things. But I'll tell you this. None of those are the cause of your sin. You know what the cause of your sin is? You. You are the cause of your sin. You did it. And unless you take responsibility for it without covering it, without explaining it away, without rationalizing it or denying it or blame shifting, real, liberating, heart-changing confession cannot happen. Real liberating confession starts when shifting blame ends. Here's the, the last, the third part of the prescription, the treatment. You need to be careful to distinguish true confession from either self-pity on the one hand or self-flagellation on the other. You know that word, flagellation? You know, a medieval, you know, the causing pain by lashing yourself in the back. What I want to say here is important. It's practical, but it's, it's alarming. And I hope you will be alarmed. A lot of people, including me, including you, confuse feeling sorry with real confession. Sometimes we've, we experience sorrow. I, I never should have done that. We may weep. We feel terrible. And it looks like we're confession. We're confessing. But it's not liberating. Because it's going down one of those two cul-de-sacs, either self-pity or self-flagellation. First, self-pity. Sometimes we, we confess out of embarrassment. What we're really sorry about is that we got caught. And we're sorry for the personal embarrassment that happens because we got caught. We're upset about the consequences of what we did. But we're not upset about what, what the psalm says here, the sinfulness of the sin. We're upset about the consequences, not the sin itself. That's self-pity. We hate the consequence of the sin, not the sin. And as soon as the consequences go away, guess what? Our heart begins to drift right back into those patterns. We didn't change. I see this. I've seen it in my own life, those terrible, destructive patterns. I see it in other people. Self-pity is not the same thing as true, liberating confession. Repentance that changes the heart has nothing to do with avoiding consequences. Now, the other thing that's, that's not liberating 
is this idea of self-flagellation, beating yourself up. You weep and wail and you beat yourself up, but you're not really looking for forgiveness. You're looking to show the world how much you're wallowing. And what you're trying to do is pay the debt all yourself. Look, God, how miserable I am. Self-flagellation is hating yourself, not the sin. If self-pity is hating the consequence of the sin, not the sin, self-flagellation is hating yourself, not the sin. In neither case does the heart really change. You may weep and weep and weep, but it won't be long before you're back in it again because it doesn't change you. It doesn't really liberate you. So what will? Well, here at the end is the antidote. Here's the antidote. Let's go back to the beginning. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Why are they covered? Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. I want you to flip ahead in your Bibles to Romans, to chapter 4. Here's a place where, where Paul reaches back into the Old Testament and quotes a psalm. Guess which psalm? Psalm 32. He quotes it word for word. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Listen, that's, that's an amazing statement. Imagine you're in class and you get a D on the test and the professor comes along and says, I'm not going to count that one. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know that's what you did, but I'm just going to pretend that I didn't see it. And it doesn't get tallied into your final grade. I'm going to cover it over, not taking it into account. You'd say, hallelujah, even if you were an atheist, right? You'd be excited. You'd be extraordinarily excited. But how is it that the psalm can say that? Let me ask you, is there any indication, especially the Old Testament, that God doesn't take sin seriously? That God isn't counting sin? Isn't that what the justice and the holiness of God are all about, the inability to tolerate the presence of anything that is less than holy? Why is it that that David, who writes this psalm, is so convinced that God is going to cover over his sin? Paul gives the answer right here in Romans 4. What shall we say then? Are we justified by good works? This is Romans 4. Now to the one who works... Wages aren't credited as a gift, but as an obligation. But to the one who trusts God, God who justifies those who are ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul goes on, he says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Here's what Paul's saying. It has something to do with Jesus. What does it have to do with Jesus? Well, remember the, the heartbreaking end of his earthly story. Jesus wasn't lined up against the wailing wall of the temple and shot. He wasn't electrocuted. He died how? Crucified. And you know because you've sat under sermon after sermon about exactly what crucifixion entailed. You know that it's terrible, it's slow, it's, it's, it's horrible. But it's a death by exposure. You are stripped. 
you are completely uncovered, stripped naked and laid out to the world to see, exposed to the elements, the cold, the rain, defenseless to all the weapons of the soldiers, naked and vulnerable to the jeers of the crowd. It's a horrible, mocking death. You're completely uncovered. It's the ultimate keyhole. Everyone in the world looking in on you, completely exposed. Why did Jesus go through that? He was uncovered so that we could be covered. He paid a price that that was unimaginable so that we could say, Lord Jesus, save me. Or Father, accept me because of what Jesus did. You heard Romans 4, and so you say, Father, accept me not because of anything that I can do or will do. I can't cover my sin. I'm not going to pretend that I can do it. I'm I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to go on beating myself up because of it. Lord, uncover my sin and then cover me because of Jesus. That's that's the gospel. That's the way that you avoid self-pity and self-flagellation. 1 John 1, 9. Scripture that should be highlighted in your Bibles. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just. Not merciful. This is just. This is just. And then by, the, by saying that, we mean that this came at, at great perilous cost. This wasn't free. God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus uncovered so that you can be covered. You know how forgiven you are? I mean, do you know how free you are? No more self-pity, no more flagellation. Instead, you start to hate the sin. You don't hate yourself. You don't hate the consequences. You hate the sin because it grieves you to think about what this person who uncovered himself so incredibly for the world, it grieves you to think that he had to do this for you. And that liberates an old fairy tale. It's called the Black Bull of Norway. But a prince who goes into battle and, and he kills someone and and it's a it was an act that he regretted deeply. He's upset about it. He's feeling the deep weight of guilt in his life. He comes home. He takes off his tunic. There's blood on it and he can't get it out. He tries and tries and tries to wash it, but it won't come clean. He feels stained. He, he feels guilty. And so a decree goes out through the whole kingdom. Any young woman who can get the stain out of my tunic will become my bride and your queen. It's a long story. I can't get into all the details. At one point, there's a servant girl. This, this young slave doesn't know anything about the decree or the tunic. She just is at work at the home where, where the king was living. She sees some laundry lying around. She does the laundry. And in the laundry was the tunic. She washes it. The stain comes clean. She doesn't know anything about the significance of what's just happened. There's an evil mother. Isn't there always an evil stepmother in fairy tales? I don't know how stepmothers survive in the world, but there's an evil stepmother. She sees what the girl has done, and she knows the significance of it. She has a daughter. So she grabs the tunic. She grabs her daughter, not the servant girl, her daughter, goes off to the palace and says, look, my daughter got the stain out. And the prince has the feeling that there's something not right. But he goes ahead with the engagement just the same. Lots more twists and turns in the plot. 
and eventually he finds out who his true love really is. Whoever gets the stain out, whoever it is that can deal with that, that guilt, whoever can liberate you from that voice that says you're condemned, you're no good, that's your true love. Sometimes we meet human beings who can get us part of the way there. I did, and I married one. I'm so grateful for her. But ultimately, there is only one. Our truest love. The one who will always get the stain out, always silence the voices, who can really set you free. To him, I think we need to pray. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you. What great bad and good news this psalm holds for us. On the one hand, it deals with that difficult subject of sin. We're modern people. We don't want to hear it. But Lord, it also shows us a reality that we have to deal with. And it gives us the capacity to deal with it. And especially, it, it offers up the great antidote to the problem of sin and guilt. Your Son, Jesus Christ covered for us, stripped and experiencing the dehumanizing gaze of the crowd so that we could be covered and completely cleansed. We pray that you would help every single one of us here listening today to grab a hold of and apply this this life-saving, life-giving truth in our lives. We pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.